Able, please remain standing and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Our text for this morning will be John 5, verses 17 through 30. If you're visiting with us, we're thankful you're here. And uh, we are making our way through the Gospel of John, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, passage by passage. We'll begin at verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, But what he sees the father do for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel for as the father raises the dead and gives life to them. Even so, the son gives life to whom he will for the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the, honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can't of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And thus the reading of God's word, let us pray. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us by your spirit. Teach us your word, convict us, encourage us in Christ. Help us to believe it and to love it. And to obey it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Years ago, C.S. Lewis, a British Christian author and speaker, he wrote an article entitled God in the Dock. And in Britain, the dock is the witness stand. If someone is on trial and It is necessary for that person to give a defense for their actions as to whether they're guilty or not guilty. They would at one point sit in the dock. And so you see the title of his article there, what he's saying. And uh, in that article, he's talking about reaching unbelievers in his day. And he says the greatest barrier for reaching unbelievers is what he calls the almost total absence of any sense of sin from the minds of his audience. And so Lewis observed this, and I quote, he said, the ancient man approached God 
or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He, that is man, is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. And how true that is. You know, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. And I say that because in our text, who is it that is in the dock? It's our Lord Jesus. Remember what has happened. He has healed this paralytic man, the man with some infirmity. In John chapter 5, he did this on the Sabbath. Well, he is the Lord of the Sabbath, but the Jews come and they see that and they want to attack Jesus. They become his critics because he did a work on the Sabbath. And so what we find here in verses 17 and following is Jesus's his defense for his actions, his apologetic and indeed his argument for why he did what he did on the Sabbath, this work of healing this man at the pool of Bethesda. And so Jesus then is put in the dock, as Lewis might put it today, by the leaders of Israel, those whom John entitles in verse 16, the Jews. Remember, John refers to the leaders often in his gospel as the Jews, the Sanhedrin, probably the Pharisees, the self-righteous within Israel. And so my goal for this morning is to walk through this passage and not just look at every verse in sequence, but really I I want us to understand Jesus's argument, his flow of thought, his thinking, what he is saying. And so that's what we're going to do, Lord willing. And as we do this, I just want to put into your mind that this um, defense of our Lord Jesus contains multiple doctrines. It contains the doctrine of creation, the Doctrine of providence, the doctrine of the Trinity, the Christology of Jesus Christ, eschatology, the study of last things and our salvation. And so as we consider that, then let let us begin with the first point. I think the first um, argument, if you want to put it this way, the first proposition of our Lord here in this text. First of all, Jesus argues, he asserts that he alone possesses a unique relationship with God the Father. What is that relationship? It is his divine sonship, that he is the son of the living God. I mean, if we look through the text, he will say this, and look, you know, even after our text for this morning, he refers to himself as the son some ten times. The Son of God, the Son of the Father. And in our text for this morning, if you look there in verse 17, he says, but uh, John tells us, but Jesus answered them and said, my father has been working until now. In verse 19, he refers to himself as the son. Verse 20, the father, he says, loves the son. Verse 21, the father, he says, and then he refers to himself as the son, the son of the father. Verse 25, he says that he is the son of God. Verse 26, the son of man, or verse 20, 
7, the Son of Man. Verse 26, the Son. And by the way, when he calls himself the Son of Man, that's an Old Testament term. And it uh, points all the way back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where there's that prophecy of the Son of Man who is caught up and goes before the Ancient of Days. And that's the second person of the Godhead, our Lord Jesus Christ at his ascension, where he would go after his crucifixion and resurrection. And so as Jesus refers to himself in this way, the Son of God, that God in heaven is his Father. What is the significance of this? I mean, after all, what is the beef of the Jews? What is their problem with Jesus in asserting his own sonship? Well, while it is true in the Old Testament, Son of God could and and does refer to various people groups. It refers to Israel as a whole. The Jewish people never prayed or spoke of God as their own personal father. They would never refer to God as my father. And so then why do they take issue at this? Well, if you look at verse 17 carefully, it is because Jesus' sonship puts him on par with God the Father. It says, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. He is doing what the Father is doing. He's about the Father's business in the Father's way. To assert this is for Jesus to say that he possesses the same perfections, the same attributes and nature as God himself. What is he saying there? Uh, We'll come back to this. But in verse 17, he's pointing out that the Father, even though he created during the six days of creation in Genesis chapter 1, and rested on the seventh, that after the Sabbath day, and even really during that day of rest, God the Father, God Himself was working. He continues to work. In what way? We call it providence. God provides for His creation. Psalm 145 says, All of the creatures of the earth look heavenward, and God feeds them. God is not the deist. God is not the watchmaker who's made a watch, wound it, and stepped back, and he's looking to see what happens. No, he's actively involved. More than that, he's governing his creation. As we say, he governs all of his creatures and all their actions. And so Jesus is putting himself on par with God as the creator and as the one who works providence, who governs the universe that he created And so Jesus is joining in that work he is saying to them. And therefore, what is said about God in general in Daniel 4.35, Jesus is saying is true of himself. Daniel 4.35 says, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Done. Now, as you think about this, remember that these Jews are looking at Jesus. And when they see Jesus, what do they see? Flesh and blood. A human body. We know that Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. In the incarnation, he took upon flesh, human flesh, so that the divine nature and the human nature were joined together. But the glory of that divine nature is shrouded, it's covered. By the human body. 
And so that's what they see. And the reason I point that out is because for them to believe what he says would be a matter of faith, a matter of believing what Jesus said and trusting what he said. So what was their reaction? Verse 18 tells us, it says they sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, I would put broken air brackets there. He broke the Sabbath, but but also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. For them, this is blasphemy and blasphemy would incur what? The death penalty, the death penalty. And I'll note that this was the final accusation against our Lord by the Jews that he equated himself with God, that he supposedly committed blasphemy. And we find this in the Gospels in Mark uh, chapter uh, 14, for instance, where the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus says, I am. The high priest tears his clothes and he says, what more do we need to hear? He's committed blasphemy. And of course it says, and they all condemned him to be deserving of death. But this is the claim of the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. In Philippians 2 and verse 6, the Apostle Paul speaks of Jesus and it says that it is He who, being in the form of God, the exact nature of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And so then we have one of the critical, non-negotiable tenets of the Christian faith. And that is the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is something that is necessary to believe in order to be a Christian and to be saved. Ultimately, this is dealing with the doctrine of the Trinity, the triunity, three in one, one God, three persons. And Jesus begins his defense here of, quote, breaking the Sabbath by declaring himself to be the divine Son of God. As we put it today, the eternally begotten Son of God. And this is in line with John's purpose for writing. Remember at the end, he says in chapter 20, verse 31, these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is what? The Son of God and that by believing you might have life in his name. Well, there's a second step in Jesus's defense, his argument It is this. It is because Jesus possesses this unique relationship as the Son of God that He has a divine role to fulfill. As the Son of God, He has a unique role to fulfill. Again, this is based on His relationship to the Father. In verse 20, He is the beloved Son. He says the Father loves the Son. And he shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these. Because Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God. And because the Father loves the Son, Jesus. The Father shows Jesus and has shown him his own works. The Father's works to Jesus. Jesus is privy to that special knowledge. That inter-Trinitarian knowledge. And when Jesus is talking here about his sonship, you know, theologians, they make this distinction. When it comes to Jesus and his ministry on the earth, 
as he's taken on human flesh. They call that the economic trinity, the way the father refer, um, um, interacts with the son and that relationship there, how the son has come to obey the father's will. That's the economy within that relationship. And so Jesus here talks about that work that the father gave him to do. And in our context here, what are those works? Well, he names two. Uh, They are raising the dead and then judgment. Raising the dead and judgment. Now, as Jesus talks about this, we need to understand that he mentions two timetables when it comes to a resurrection. And in a sense, two timetables when it comes to judgment. What do I mean by that? He, He talks about two types of resurrection here. And when it comes to the judgment, he pronounces judgment during his earthly ministry. But there is that day of judgment, that one judgment that is to come at the last day when our Lord returns bodily for the second time to the earth. And so if you look at verse 24, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming. So that's future, right? It's coming. The hour is coming and now is That's present. Now is is present when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. And then if you look at verse 25, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is. That's what I just read, isn't it? So go back to verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. And shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. So I know I'm muddying the waters here a little bit. The point is there are two tenses, uh, present and future. He who believes has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. So if you believe, you have life now. If you believe now, you have life and you won't, therefore, come into judgment in the future. And then, as he says in verse 25, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the son of God. So there are two timetables. We need to keep that in mind as we work through this passage. So then what are the works that Jesus performs in the present during his days on the earth and his earthly ministry, and even now as he sits at God's right hand. Well, first of all, Jesus raises the dead spiritually. He raises the dead spiritually. In verse 25, he talks about those who hear. And those who hear in the biblical sense are those who have faith, those who listen, they believe it, and that belief results in action in obedience to God. And so he's talking about raising the dead spiritually. I think here when he says this, it's in line with Ephesians 2.1. In Ephesians 2.1, Paul's talking to the church, to the Christians at Ephesus. He says about God, it is he who made you, the Christians at Ephesus, and he made you alive who were what? Dead in your sins and trespasses. The natural man, the unbeliever is not merely sick when he comes into this world. Kevin was not merely um, crippled when he came into this world. No, I was dead spiritually, just as all men are dead spiritually. 
when they come into this world. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 3, you must be born again in order to see or enter the kingdom of heaven. That's called regeneration, to be made alive again. That regenesis, that work of creation. It's a new creation, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all things have become new, as Paul puts it there. So this is the new birth that Jesus is talking about, raising the dead spiritually. And I believe this corresponds to Revelation 20. And uh, it talks there about the first resurrection. The first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection from the dead in space and time. And it happens to those who are the elect of God. And also there's this present an active work of judgment. Again, I've said this. Jesus pronounces judgment. He preaches the word. He gives warnings. Yes, there are threats in that sin. If you don't believe, if you don't repent, you will perish. Luke 13, 3, he says that. He says in uh, Matthew 10, when he sends out his apostles to go and preach, he talks about those who will receive them in his name and those who will, will reject them in his name. If they are received, then he is received. If they are rejected, he is rejected. And Jesus says in Matthew 10 and verse 15, if anyone will not listen to his apostles, he says it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Sodom and Gomorrah, a wicked city, steeped in gross, unmentionable iniquities. And so there's a warning of judgment. And it is part of the pastor's and preacher's job of the gospel of Christ to present these warnings as well as the good news. There is forgiveness, but there's also the fact that we have sinned. And because we sinned, Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. Eternal damnation, hell forever. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that's the present work that Jesus mentions here. There's also that future work, those works which Jesus will perform in the future. And so that's another resurrection, raising the dead physically and executing judgment, not merely talking about judgment, not proclaiming judgment, but actually executing that judgment. And so then he also talks here about raising the dead physically, uh, bodily, If you look there at verse 28, he says, do not marvel. Stop marveling at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And so he talks about the resurrection of the body at the last day, at the last day of judgment. And so there's this resurrection until life. Those who are in the grave, those whose bodies have died, there's been a separation from the body on the part of their soul. And so Jesus powerfully, the one who is omnipotent by his spirit, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, there will be this resurrection at the last day, not only of believers, but also unbelievers. Did you catch that? In verse 28, he says, in which all who are in the graves. 
And so in verse 29, he talks about this bodily, physical resurrection at the last day. And there are two resurrections, two types of that bodily resurrection, which will happen at the last day. So if you look at verse 29, he tells us they will come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, if you read that and are asking the question, does Jesus here teach salvation according to good works? May it never be. The Bible does not. The Bible cannot contradict itself because God is truth and God, we are told, cannot tell a lie. And so we have to understand what Jesus says here in light of other passages of Scripture. For instance, Romans 8, 1, it says, For the believer, the Christian, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you've been justified, if you've been forgiven based on your faith for the, that you put into the Lord Jesus Christ, faith is not the grounds, but if you put your faith in Jesus, you have been justified, you have been forgiven. There is therefore today no condemnation for you. And so what's Jesus saying? As one put it, Jesus is talking about the lives they live. The lives they live form the test of the faith they profess. There's this profession of faith. And the lives they live form the test of the faith they profess. And so among those who profess to be Christians, their lives will be looked upon to see if they actually had good works, imperfect as they were, uh, after all, James 2.20 says, faith without works is dead. It's no faith. It's a dead faith. Faith includes action. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But our faith, if it is a lively faith, will demonstrate that it is, is alive. And so he talks about that. Those who have done good, that's the righteous. That's who, those who have put their faith in Jesus. And then he talks about the resurrection of those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And so think about this. Jesus is saying at the last day, at the day of judgment, there will be this resurrection of all men, those who are in the grave. The Christian will be raised up, a resurrection unto life. The non-Christian will be raised up, a resurrection unto condemnation. Condemnation is the opposite in Scripture of justification. Justification is a courtroom term. It means to be declared not guilty. So for the Christian, the one who's put his faith in Jesus Christ, he's already been declared not guilty in the courtroom of heaven. But at the last day, those who are not Christians, who are the non-Christian, they'll be raised bodily. And they will stand before Christ himself, as he says, he's been granted judgment by the father. And they will hear of the case against them and they will hear the pronouncement, not that you are justified or have been justified, but that you are condemned. You are guilty. You are still in your sins. And so the words of Jesus in Matthew 7 is what they will hear. Depart from me. I never knew you. What a sobering thought. What a thought that 
it would seem, is not in the minds of churches today. The final judgment. As Paul says, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So when we think about this, Jesus was there at creation. Jesus was with the Father at creation. And with the Father right now today is working with the Father in His works of providence. So keep that in mind. You know, it's not by chance that it's raining today. The Bible says that God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. And Jesus is part of that cause. Colossians 1.16, it says, For by Him, Jesus... All things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him, that is Jesus, and for him. And he is before all things, that's creation. That's his preexistence. And in him all things consist. That's his providence. He holds all things together. And so even as he walked the earth, even as he healed this man on the Sabbath in his day, he was holding all things together, maintaining his creation. That's what Jesus is saying. And so do you follow the argument then? Jesus has come being sent by the Father in order to give life, that is spiritual life, And to him, Jesus, the Father, has committed judgment at the last day. Jesus was not guilty of, quote, breaking the Sabbath. And listen carefully. If Jesus was guilty of breaking the Sabbath by healing on that day, then the Jews are going to have to say that God the Father is guilty of Breaking the Sabbath because while he completed his work of creation on the sixth day and rested on the seventh, he continued and continues his work of providence to this day. My father has been working until now and I have been working. Do you understand the argument? So Jesus has given has been given by the father work to do. And that is his earthly ministry. And here he includes in that spiritual, physical resurrection and judgment. Now, the last step really is Jesus' closing argument. It is his conclusion. We could say the clincher. And it goes like this. Since... Jesus has this unique relationship with the Father. And since Jesus is fulfilling the role that the Father has given to him, to reject Jesus is to reject God the Father. The one who sent him. Do you understand and see what he is saying? This is what he's been telling them throughout this passage. If you look in verse 17, Jesus says he's doing the work of the Father. In verse 18, they got it. He is saying he is equal with God. 
By the way, we have the Father, the Son here in this text. If you're wondering about the Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter 5 and verse 4, it is said there that Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. And lying to the Holy Spirit, they lied to God. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the three persons of the Godhead. Back in John 5, in verse 19, they do the same works. The Father and the Son do the same works. In verses 22 and 23, he says it plainly. Look at verse 23. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. There it is. Verse 26, life is granted to the Son. That goes back to John 1, 4, by the way. In Him was life. Verse 27, the Father grants authority to the Son. And if you look at verse 30, here's the crux and summary of His argument. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, before his crucifixion, Jesus prays to the Father in verse 4, I have finished the work that you have given me to do. And so then we see the argument of Jesus. If you want to honor And glorify the living and true God. You must honor and glorify his son, Jesus Christ. But the error of these Jews is the error of so many today. As Lewis would put it, the Jews here and so many today put God in the dock. They put Jesus in the dock and guess what? They found him guilty. He may have declared himself to be the son of God. He may have declared to be equal with God, but he is not, they would say, God. This goes for all false religions. Religions which deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, Christian science. You know, they would say that he was the son of God, but that he was not deity. Islam. New Age, you know, some New Agers tell us, well, Jesus was an enlightened teacher and he realized that he was God. And you can come to that point where you realize you were God, too. That's pantheism that says all is God. No, God alone is God and we are his creatures. He's the creator. We are his creatures. This applies to the critical scholars of the early 21st century, influenced by German liberal theology that made its way to the states even and the mainline churches. You know, they would say Jesus was a good teacher, but he, just, he certainly was not God. And so you had the fundamentalist movement and so forth. And, you know, this text, it was very difficult for the critical theologians, the liberals who don't believe in reality. And it's a text that applies to critics of Jesus in general. I can't believe that. Jesus was a good teacher, perhaps, but to say that he is God? Well, guess what, my friend? You disagree. If you say that, you disagree with Jesus himself, as this text makes clear. Someone will say, well, who is Jesus anyway? And uh, Dr. James Kennedy, decades ago, said, well, either Jesus was a liar. He just simply lied. He knew it. Or he was a lunatic. He was crazy. 
or he is Lord. That's what this text is saying. John 5 answers the question. Jesus is God. Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. God come in the flesh to accomplish the salvation of his people in their place. My friend, here's what you need to understand. At the last day, when your spirit is reunited with your resurrected body, you will stand before Jesus, your judge. 2 Corinthians 5.10, the apostle says, To the church we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And how do we know this? Because as Acts 17.31 has said, God has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. Look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the proof that we will be judged by Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a Christian, you need to fear not. Because Jesus says here, if you believe you've not come into condemnation, you will not come into judgment. You will stand before Jesus, as 1 Corinthians 3 teaches, to receive any rewards for the deeds you've done in the flesh. And even the rewards will be by the grace of God. Because our good works still are imperfect, mixed with sin. But maybe you're sitting here today, or you're hearing me, and you say, okay, Kevin, I get it. I'm going to stand before him. I'm a sinner. What must I do? Well, Jesus says that. Look at verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him, even the Father who sent me, has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. How can you escape the condemning judgment of God? You have to do something now, today. Today is the day of salvation. You have to believe in God the Father. You have to believe in Jesus Christ and repent and turn from your sins to Him. You have to make what Jesus says here your confession. Like that old creed says that He is very God of very God. You must say He is my God and He is very God of very God. For Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your own heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you done that? If you have, rest assured that you belong to Christ. Your sins are forgiven. You will not enter into condemnation. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for giving us uh, the, the glorious, comforting text of Scripture. And even the ones that rattle us a bit, that wake us up, they sober us. We thank you for not being cruel and making us look under rocks in dungeons through telescopes to find the answers that we need. But you have given us your holy word, which tells us the bread of life, the one of whom we must eat by faith to have life, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you in his name. Amen.